1 Corinthians this morning. What section of the Bible is this in? It's in the epistles, yes. Another word for epistle is? A letter, yes. And in this case, who wrote this letter? 1 Corinthians? Paul did, yeah. And he wrote it to the church at Corinth. So last time we did the first three of these sections, introduction and the divisions of church and then some moral ethical disorders. Uh, we're starting with section four, instruction on marriage, and it goes on through. Um, this this uh, outline doesn't mention it, but there's kind of a change that takes place at the beginning of chapter seven, where he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, and so for several chapters, he's answering questions. Um, but whoever did this outline didn't see that as a, as a major issue. Um, so we'll look at first chapter 7, which I've titled Answers to Questions About Marriage. <clears throat> so he says, Concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good what? Yeah, for a man not to touch a woman. Um, in other words, <clears throat> the, apparently their question had to do with should Christians marry or should they stay single? The, the background to their question I, I would think probably had some Greek philosophy in it. We know in, pre, in previous chapters they've been some of these guys are really... They really like the Greek philosophers. And we're going to see later on some of their arguments are, are again these arguments from philosophy. And there, there were some Greek philosophies that pushed um, the uh, um, unmarried state. This, this certainly would not have been a Jewish thing. I, I don't know of any Jewish um, view at the time that pushed the unmarried state. But... Um, for the Greeks, some of them did. Uh, and I think some of Paul's statements here in this chapter, I'm, I'm quite sure some of his statements in this chapter have been used then as justification later. In, in the next few hundred years of the church, um, this unmarried state just got glorified way out of proportion. And it was to the point that um, sometimes when when... A uh, husband and wife would convert and become Christians. They would separate so that they could be more holy. Uh, they were they were exalting those monks that would go out in the desert, live by themselves and all. And it, it was uh, unfortunately they were ending up committing sins, thinking that this was going to make them more holy. And that uh, they they of course completely misunderstood what Paul taught. In in that same period of time, you. It, you, it was considered necessary for you to be unmarried to become an elder. Which anyone that knows the qualifications for elders would kind of <laughs> be puzzled at that. <coughs> but that's how far this move toward asceticism went. <coughs> but Paul, in this chapter, is not pushing asceticism. He's suggesting that there is room for the unmarried and there is room for the married. Uh, you may recall a time when 
Jesus taught on on divorce and marriage, and what did the apostles say to him after that? He said, if that's the way it is, better not to get married. Yeah. And what did Jesus say? Did he say yes or no on the better not to get married? Yeah, not everyone can accept that. <clears throat> Only those to whom it's given. In other words, not everyone is designed for a life of singleness. God hasn't given that gift to everyone. And Paul recognizes that in this chapter that some people have the gift of being able to be single and some people don't. So he says in verse 2, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. That's the normal state. Um, And then he talks about the the sexual relationship in marriage that um, you should not deprive each other. Um, But he suggests in verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Um, Paul himself, how was he? What what state was he in? He was single, yes. And he's in... And he says it would be good that, that lots of other people could be single too, but not everyone has that gift. <clears throat> so he then addresses different groups of people all in, in the, the um, area of marriage. <clears throat> so in verse 80, he talks to the unmarried of the widows. He says it's good for them to remain even as I, but if they don't have self-control, what should they do? Get married, yes. Um, <clears throat> So then in verse 10, to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. What does he mean when he says not I but the Lord? It's more than that. That's right. Um, When he says not I but but the Lord, I mean, Paul himself was writing Scripture. But when he says the Lord, he's referring to things the Lord said when he was here. And and on on at least two occasions... He specifically said, you should not divorce your wife. So, so, when he, so he, he emphasizes that this is coming from, from Jesus Himself. And So then in verse 12, but to the rest I say not the Lord. And, and this is important. See, that's why I wanted to bring up the question in verse 10 because when He says I say not the Lord, some people have the idea that, oh, well now He's not, not inspired. That's not it. He is simply addressing a situation that Jesus did not address when He was on earth. And the situation, the rest He's talking about here is are Christians married to non-Christians? Why didn't Jesus deal with that when He was on earth? (laughs) That's right. The need wasn't there. Um, Jesus was preaching to Jews. Both, Both sides of the marriage would be Jews. Um, you don't get this situation until you go out into the world and start converting Gentiles and you find sometimes one of them is converted but the other one's not. So if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. But in verse 15, if the unbelieving one leaves, what does he tell the other person to do? Well, no, he did not say remain single. Um, Linda? He says let him leave. 
He says the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now there's been quite a lot of discussion of whether not under bondage means that the person could get married again. Um, but he did not say that she, he, he never said they have to remain single. So everyone's going to have to work that one out between them and God. Um, now in verse 17, he's still talking about the same subject, although he broadens it here. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct all the churches. So he gives some examples. I, I'm sure what he's, the reason he brings it up is because some people were called being married to an unbeliever, and some people were called being single. And he, he's saying, you don't have to change your state, your, 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 your relationship state, when you become a Christian. So he gives an example. Now, obviously, he's not talking about sin. I mean, was anyone called being a burglar? <laughs> he's not saying, you know, he still let him stay a burglar. But was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone be called uncircumcised? He's not to be circumcised. Um, Verse 20, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. He mentions slavery in verse 21, um, and then he summarizes in verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. God can use us in whatever situation we are in. But now in verse 25, he comes back to the marriage thing. And that's why I don't think he was really changing this up even earlier. Uh, concerning virgins, people who have never been married, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Now notice, this is different than what he said about in, back in verse um, 12, but to the rest I say not the Lord. That was still a command from the Holy Spirit, but here he's giving an opinion. It's a very useful opinion, but he's not trying to bind this on people. So, he says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress that it is good for man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. He, he has to continue to emphasize here that what he's saying is not a rule. It's advice. And there's times when we can have inspired advice that will help us if we obey it it will hinder us if we disobey it, and yet it's not a sin to disobey. <laughs> um, and sometimes the advice doesn't exactly fit a person's situation, and Paul recognizes that. Um, that he's advising people not to get married. He thinks they'll have less trouble, given the, what he says he calls the present distress. But he recognizes that that's, it doesn't fit everybody. Um, in verse 32, "...but I want you to be free from concern." One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. It's not wrong to try to please your wife. But Paul says you you could do more for the Lord. And, and, And if you look at Paul's example in his own life, clearly he could not have done a lot of what he did if he'd had a wife. But again, the situations may change and there may be times when it would be better to get married. And I'm sure Paul would agree with that. But in in the situation he was talking about, in general, he felt like it was better not to. Um, So in verse 39, he says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. With what limitation? Yeah, only in the Lord. 
<coughs> but in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Alright. Now, chapter 8, this, the principle of liberty applied to eating food sacrificed to idols. <coughs> He's going to be on this topic for several chapters. And, and he really he deals with it much more thoroughly than uh, we might expect at first glance. Because the question they asked had to do with what in verse 1? Yeah, eating things sacrificed to idols. Not a question we're overly concerned about today. But the principle Paul uses to address it applies to almost everything in our whole lives. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge does what? Makes it arrogant. But love does what? Yeah. Um, some translations say knowledge puffs up. And edifies means to build up. So you get, get a little bit of a play on word. You know, knowledge puffs up. Uh, love builds up. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. So, he's going to be on this subject of love for quite a while. And, and knowledge versus love. It do, they don't have to be in opposition. You could have both. But unfortunately, knowledge too often crowds everything else out because of pride. So, here's the knowledge part in verse 4. Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, what do we know? There's no such thing as an idol. No such thing as an idol. So, hey, if I'm eating food sacrificed to an idol, I'm eating food that is just food. <laughs> That's pretty easy. Um, however, verse 7, here he comes to the love part. Not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. <clears throat> this is a picture of ancient Corinth and those few pillars left standing are part of the temple to Apollo. Back then. I don't know how many temples they had back then, but that's, that's got to be the best temple left because I found scattered pictures of that on the internet. I didn't find any pictures of any other temples in, in Corinth. Um, so, that's just the environment these people were living in. I mean, they, you live in this town, you're seeing these huge temples all around, and very, very common to have meat sacrificed to idols. Someone invites you over to their house, you know, and, and they'll, they'll ask, you know, this is a great blessing we have today because uh, I went to the Temple of Apollo and sacrificed this meat there, and, and that's what we're eating. And a lot of the Christians had come out of that environment. And so that they knew what it felt like to sit down and eat meat sacrificed to an idol. And if they see you doing it, and they join in you, that's a big problem. <clears throat> and so Paul is saying, now what would love do? We know what knowledge does, but what would love do? He says in verse 8, "...food will not commend us to God, for neither are we the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat." There's some things that are just a matter of liberty. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. And you might, with your great knowledge, encourage someone else to do something that to him would be a sin. And you ruin a brother because of your knowledge. That's, not, that's no good. So he says, If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. 
we read that and we think, well, that's very nice, Paul. Of course, Paul's not really going to do it because um, it, it isn't probably going to happen. I mean, he, he, there's plenty of times when Paul can eat meat and not cause his brother to stumble. So we think, well, very noble words, Paul, but where is, you know, but, you know, you don't have to put your money where your mouth is, they say. But chapter 9 is a case where Paul shows that, in fact, he did. Here we have a principle of liberty in Paul's own life, and he took the far more difficult route in order to help others. Not to help himself, but to help others. So, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul goes through a defense of his right to be paid to be to preach. The reason he's having to defend it is because when he was at Corinth, he didn't take any money from them. They, they did not pay him a salary. He did not accept money from them. Um, in fact, when he was talking to the elders at Ephesus, he told them that when he was at Ephesus, he said, I worked with my own hands to provide for what I needed and for all the men that were on his team. Which would be quite a heavy burden for the guy to do. Wow. Um, so he goes through a number of scriptures. I'm not going to go through all these to justify the fact that he had the right to be paid. And he summarizes in verse 14, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And of course, we're very familiar with that principle. We don't have any problem with that. But, he says, I have used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. And so he talks about how he had to preach the gospel. Why did he have to preach the gospel? Yeah, the Lord, the Lord told him to do it. So, this wasn't a matter of choosing. He had to. But he says there is something I could choose to do, and that is I could choose to do what? Well, but that's not in this chapter. He chose to do something in this chapter that he didn't have to do. Yeah, Linda? Right. He had a choice whether to get paid or not, and he chose not to get paid. And that was... So that that's something over and above what he was ordered to do. And, and he was very happy to do that. Now, he doesn't go into all the details about it, but it's very obvious he's doing this to keep money from being a stumbling block with his converts. He doesn't want them to think that he's doing it for their money. Which, I mean, you think about it even today. Don't a lot, an awful lot of people view preachers as doing it for the money? It's just a very common attitude in the world. And, and you know, there's certainly at least a few rotten apples in the bunch that... <laughs> that you could point and say, that's all the reason he's doing it, is for the money. Uh, so, Paul says he, he tried to become all things to all men. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Um, in verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And then he talks about how hard it is, how hard we have to work to serve God. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now we understand that you know we're all in a race, but it's not like whoever gets the finish line just wins and everyone else goes to hell. I mean, that's not what Jesus, what, what Paul is saying here. But he's saying we ought to act like that. <laughs> Instead of just kind of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in this race, you know, just kind of calmly walking along. 
Um, it really doesn't matter if I come in first or last, as long as I, you know, as long as I run. That, Paul says that's not the attitude you have to have. He says everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. In those days, they didn't get give gold medals. They they had a, a wreath they got to wear on your head, and that that was the prize for winning a, a race. Um, he says in verse 27, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We read this and we say, if Paul felt like he had to work that hard, how much should we? <laughs> what, what an example. And, and it all came out of this, it all really came from the topic of liberty and how we use it. Liberty and love. Which we'll continue in this chapter even. Um, in chapter 10, it begins with warnings from the history of Israel. And, and it goes back to Israel. And, and um, they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So in a figurative sense, they were all baptized. Since there was water on both sides of them, there was water above them in the cloud. They were, they were buried in baptism into Moses in the, sea, in, the, in the cloud of the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, the manna, of course. They all drank the same spiritual drink, the water from the rock. It, it, but what happened to most of them? They were rejected. So he says these things happen as examples for us so that we could learn and we wouldn't be like them. And he mentions the number of sins we shouldn't commit. One of the ones I noticed in verse 10 don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. We may, you know, we may look at these others and say, well, I don't worship idols, I don't commit fornication. Well, but you grumble. <laughs> That's a tough one, huh? Um, so, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. <clears throat> and then a very famous verse, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. In other words, we don't have to sin. So then, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We didn't realize it, but through that whole chapter 9, when he's talking about how he could, he could be paid to preach, but he wouldn't, he was still on the subject of eating things sacrificed to idols. <laughs> because he was showing how we should use our liberty in service to one another. So, one of the things, one of the first things he covers here is the fact that um, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're sharing in the body and the blood of Jesus. So, if that's true, then when you eat a meat, a meal sacrificed to an idol, you must be sharing in the idol. And he says that the idols are not anything, but in fact, they are worshiping demons. So you're actually sharing in a demon. He says, I don't want you to do that. So then he comes back to the original argument that the Corinthians were making to him. This is now in verse 23. All things are lawful. Well, in one sense that's true. Everything God has created has its lawful use. Meat is one thing. It's, it's lawful to eat meat. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Edify means what? Build up. Build up, yeah. Let no one seek his own good, but each the good of his neighbor. So, if you have some meat in the market and no one mentions anything about it, what you should, what should you do? 
Yeah, don't question it. Just eat it. But if an unbeliever invites you and then someone says, this is meat sacrificed to an idol, then what should you do? Refrain from eating it. Because now it's been labeled and it's and everyone's going to watch and they're going to say, oh, he worships idols too. These Christians are just like we are. That would be terrible. So in verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. That's three chapters on liberty and how Paul wants us to use our liberty to serve others instead of ourselves. Alright, chapter 11 is two separate topics. The first one is, we usually call it the head covering. I've titled it the relationship of men and women. Um, He says in verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and and God is the head of Christ. So there's an order. God, Christ, man, woman. And then he says in um, in verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Uh, and I want this is a picture of how Greek women would cover their heads in those days. The garment that they're using is called a hemation. Um, it, it was kind of the equivalent of a toga. You know, the Romans had a toga. It's just a square piece of cloth. Both men and women wore this. It, it, it was also called the outer garment. You can see underneath it, she has this inner garment, just like Jesus had the inner garment that they gambled over at the cross. But you have this outer garment, which would often be fairly long, hanging, hanging you know, down maybe below your knees even. Um, and, and you could lift it up where it goes over your head. And so, here she's put, put it over her head and wrapped it around her neck. In this case, she's, she's just put it over her head and not covering her neck. Um, if you start looking at the art from Greece and Rome in those days, you'll find these pictures are very rare. Well over 90% of the pictures of women in public do not have their heads covered. And, and this is, um, the, there are a number of brethren who use that to say, see there, it was not, it was not the standard practice for women to cover their heads in, in public. And so what Paul is commanding here is a special church rule that we must follow today. Uh, I think there's some hints in the, in the passage itself that it's not a special church rule, that it was an understood custom of that day. Um, one scholar, this, this has nothing to do with the church, but one scholar has written about the head covering in the first century, and he has suggested that um, it, was, it was not standard practice for people, for artists to show women with their heads covered on their art, you know, their sculpture or on a vase or wherever they were painting even though he says the women were covered in public. And he said that in a number of the cases with the art, the artist would, would give a, um, a signal that she had her head covered, perhaps in the placement of her hand in the art. Uh, it, it, he has not found, I don't think he's found anything that's, any rule back there that you know someone's wrote down 
artists shall not draw women with their heads covered, but it just wasn't the it wasn't the practice. Um, it's kind of like how they they enjoyed uh, doing sculptures sculptures of naked people, and yet most people weren't naked in public. That was just an artistic thing. So they would do the the pictures of the women without the head, their heads covered, and that has thrown people off. But there are a number of things in the passage that would show us that this is not a church rule. For example, verse 13, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? That's not the kind of language you use for something that's a, a command of God. I mean, Paul would never say, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a man to sleep with a woman he's not married to? Paul would never ask that. He would just tell them, God says don't do it. Uh, or verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Nature does not teach every society that. I mean, you look at, at for example, in some, I think it's a Japanese society where the men will have these long ponytails. Um, and in fact, even in the Old Testament, nature did not teach Samson it was a shame for him to have long hair. So what Paul means by nature is not the, the creation but their society and what they grew up with. Uh, and what he's trying to show them is that in your society, Corinthians, for a woman to take her head covering off while she's praying or prophesying has a meaning. And the meaning was basically, hey, I'm equal to a man. I can do anything a man can do. And Paul says that's not right for, for you to be saying that by your actions. So um, there's a, another argument on this chapter which is probably even more important. I do not have time to go into it. and it, it has to do with the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament. If anyone's interested in doing more study on that, I've got an article I wrote a few years ago on it and I'd be happy to give you a copy of that. Um, but I've got to move on to the second half of the chapter which is uh, the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and that starts in verse 17. And what was happening in the church in Corinth when they were taking the Lord's Supper? They were divided. They were taking it in separate little groups. Well, that's not a huge surprise given how the book started. But Paul is really not happy about this at all. He says at the end of verse 22, What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. And so then he goes back to the beginning. This I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus in the night in which He betrayed, took bread. <clears throat> and this is one, one of the multiple accounts of the, of the establishment of the Lord's Supper. Anyone know how many accounts we have in the New Testament about this? Four. The three synoptic Gospels and now Paul. <laughs> so, important, very important subject, which is very typical in the New Testament. Anything that's that's new and is important will typically be addressed multiple times. So then he warns us <coughs> that anyone who takes, who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So would it be fair to say that all of us when we come here on the first day of the week must look at ourselves and ask, am I worthy to take this Lord's Supper? <laughs> Alright, Ralph. <laughs> yeah, I carefully phrased that wrong. <laughs> he didn't say 
Anyone who is unworthy when he takes it. That's not what he said. What did he say? In an unworthy manner. I mean, if you want to ask if we're worthy, when someone says we must be worthy, what he usually means is something we cannot possibly be. I mean, look back on the past week. How have I lived? Am I worthy to take the Lord's Supper? If I was worthy, I wouldn't need the Lord's Supper. <laughs> the Lord's Supper is for my sins. But I can do it in a worthy manner. And that's very serious. We, we, we need to make sure that when we partake of it, that we really are worshiping God and not sinning. That would be terrible because the closer you come to God, the more serious it is how you behave. And when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're getting awfully close to God. Alright, so now he goes to another subject. Apparently they had asked him about this, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. I don't want you to be unaware. For the next three chapters, he's going to address this subject, the spiritual gift subject. In verse 4 he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Um, what was the problem at Corinth? Why does he emphasize there's a variety of gifts? Yeah, everyone wanted the best, the flashiest. Yeah, they all wanted to speak in tongues because that that just it looks so cool. Um, and um, no, the very same problem exists. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in verse seven, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good, and that's what this chapter is about. Um, this chapter is not so much trying to teach them about spiritual gifts as it's trying to teach them the attitude of love. Consider how you use your gift to help other people because that's why the Holy Spirit gave it to you. The Holy Spirit does not give someone a gift for themselves. He gives them a gift because they're part of the church and the gift is to help the whole church. And although we don't have all the same gifts they had, we do. every one of us has gifts. God wants us to use these gifts to help the whole group. And so he uses he compares the church to what? In this chapter, Linda? A human body. Talks about, you know, feet and hands and eyes and ears. Um, and, and and he shows how silly it is for you know the, the eyes to say, Well, I don't need ears <laughs> or the feet to say I don't need hands or whatever. Um if the whole body were an eye, he says, "Where would the hearing be? You know, it'd be, it'd be, we would be in big, in bad shape." And in the church, we're like that. No one of us is a foot and a hand and an eye and an ear all at the same time. Somebody over here is a foot. Someone over here is a hand. Someone over here is an eye. Well, we need everybody. You can't have you can't have a body that exists that's only an eye or it's only a foot. And that's what Paul's trying to emphasize here. But then he says in verse 31, but earnestly desire the greater gifts and I show you a still more excellent way. And of course, what is the excellent way? That is love. And this, of course, is, the, is one of the very famous chapters in the Bible. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
The greatest things we could possibly have and possibly do become useless without love. But with love, even the most humble things become valuable. What did Jesus say about the person who gives a cup of cold water in His name? They will not lose their reward. If it's, if it's done out of love, it has value in God's sight. So He gives a list of, qual- of qualities here in verse beginning of verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own, does not provoke, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's a description of love. Then another argument is the fact that love is going to endure longer than those gifts. Prophecy is going to be done away with, tongues will be done away with, but not love. It's going to endure forever. Um, he says in verse 13, but now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Yeah. And indeed, love is the foundation of them. So now that he's set the groundwork with love, then he can go back and, and address some, some less, less important issues, but nevertheless, they've got to be dealt with. How they use their gifts in the assembly. And they had a big problem because what everyone wanted to do in their assembly is speaking tongue. Yeah. <laughs> and Paul says, "What good is that going to do? You've got to think about what what's helping the others. If you're speaking a language that nobody else understands, how is that helping anybody? Now, if you had someone interpret it, it might help them, but otherwise not. So he finally, after going, he he, he recommends instead of speaking in tongues, what should they try to do? Prophesy, yeah, which is in is an ordinary language everyone else spoke, but it was telling them things that would be beneficial to them. So he um, let's see. He says in verse twenty-seven, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. So you're not going to have everybody speaking in tongues at the same time. Two, maybe three in a, in a given service and you've got to have an interpretation. If there's no interpreter, don't, don't do it. Then with the prophesying, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Um, then he, he throws in a little parenthesis about the women here, <coughs> which I think probably means the wives. Because in the Greek, the word woman and the word wife was identical. They didn't have a separate word for wife. Um, and it appears that he... I don't know whether they were violating this rule or whether he was concerned they might, but um, back when he was saying, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment, there were some women who could prophesy too. But he did not want them getting involved in this passing judgment. Uh, there was, he says, they are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. Women are to be in subjection. When I preached on this a few months back, I pointed out that every place in the New Testament that deals with the limitations of what women can do in the church always goes back to the law. It was not a new rule. And this, and, and anyone that, that takes this and says, oh, we have this special assembly rule 
Just in the assembly women can't talk. They're misunderstanding it. This goes much deeper than that. There is a relationship between women and men that has to be um, present whenever you have men and women present. Not just in the assembly. Um, it's not, this is not just a, a church assembly rule. It's an application of a universal principle to their assemblies. Alright, chapter 15, which is the longest chapter in this book, it's about the resurrection. Um, well, what resurrection is it about? Christ's resurrection? And ours. <laughs> That's why I just put the resurrection there. They're together. And, that, and the problem appears to be our resurrection. Apparently, there were some people in the Corinthian church who were saying, well, there's not really going to be a resurrection of the body, folks. You might as well just forget about that. And Paul was very upset about that. He says, well, if that's the case, then Christ's body wasn't raised, was it? If there's not going to be a resurrection of the body. And he says, if Christ's body wasn't raised, then you're still in your sins. You're wasting your time, folks. <laughs> so then he starts dealing with other objections that people made about the resurrection. Um, uh, let's see here. Yeah, verse 35. Someone will say, well, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? And the only reason they're asking these questions is because they're trying to discount the resurrection. You can't be raised. The body can't be raised. And, and so, you know, I ask you these questions. If you can't ask these questions, then you, that just proves that the body can't be raised. And Paul, what's Paul called these people? <laughs> Fools, yeah, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And so he compares planting a, a seed and, the, and the, then the plant that grows out of that seed with our bodies being planted in the ground and when, in the resurrection up comes something that looks quite different from the body that went in there. And he compares all different kinds of bodies, animal, different animal bodies, heavenly bodies, just showing... Not like, you know, well, some of you are going to look like stars, some of you are going to look like, you know, elephants. But just saying, God is not limited. God has already created lots of bodies. He'll, he'll be able to handle our resurrection just fine. <laughs> that's, that's the point Paul's trying to make here. So, and then he gives us these marvelous words here at the end, verse 51 Behold, I tell you a mystery. What's a mystery? Something that has to be revealed or else you don't know it. Yes. Um, so I tell you a mystery. Now he's revealing it so we will know it. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Because the bodies you're looking at right now, they can't inherit the kingdom. Flesh and blood cannot inherit it. So his conclusion of verse 58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so then that leaves us with um, just a few last points to wrap up concerning the collection for the saints. He'd already told the church of Galatia what to do. He tells them, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collection has been made when I come. And... Um, he wasn't sure at this time whether he was going to go with them to Jerusalem or whether they'd go by themselves. But he wasn't going to be the one to carry the money. Um, 
He says in verse 8, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Um, but I'm not sure that things worked out according to his plans because this was before the Demetrius and the silversmith riot that kind of truncated his plans. Um, so then, just a few other greetings and then finally, um, in verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So for next week, you'll be reading 2 Corinthians. I don't remember if it's the whole book. I don't. It's the whole book. Okay. Um, this that letter was written just a few months after this one, but by the time Paul wrote it, he was in Philippi. He'd had to leave Ephesus kind of in a hurry. Um, so we'll. By that time, he's already heard back from them. He wrote this letter. He hears back from them, and so 2 Corinthians is a letter in response to their additional letter. Any last comments, thoughts? Appreciate everyone's help.